The Artificial Intelligence Podcast. AI in real life. Some personal news this episode. I have officially become a homeowner of a real house with a garden and several floors. Indeed, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time since I moved out of my parents, I now have a staircase inside of my house that is actually mine, also known as the pinnacle of adulthood. Apparently, buying a house is just the beginning of a long list of choices. The other day, I spent several hours figuring out where to find a microwave that is not connected to the internet. Because honestly, why would I need a microwave connected to the internet? Does that make me old-fashioned? Or worse, does that make me old? Turns out, connected devices will be useful for a lot of reasons. I'm Liao Wang, and at the World Summit AI, I met up with Joseph Sirach, Microsoft's CTO of AI. He shared with me his view on what our world might look like once every device has access to algorithms in the cloud. How AI can empower all of us, in big and in small ways, and become the new normal. You know, what I'm super excited by about is real-world uh, impact of AI. Yeah. And bringing AI solutions together. Yeah. And making it real. I like how that's kind of a theme of this summit almost, of, of bringing AI from sort of the sci-fi view of AI to what it's doing for us today yeah. and tomorrow. Yeah, you know, AI is very empowering. And you don't hear that conversation as much, unfortunately, because of all the hype and yeah. uh, all of that. Yeah. You know, I gave uh, in my talk about three examples. Uh, I talked about three trends. You know, the first one uh, being a cloud AI service mm -hmm. behind every device. Mm -hmm and how that might change the future of prosthetics, prosthetic devices. So what's the impact of bringing AI to the cloud? Well, it allows you to deliver it as an application, as a service. Uh, it has utility, and any software can utilize that globally from every device. So in this case, you know, the example I talked about was a prosthetic arm that can see. So it's a 3D printed arm. So rather than building all the machinery and all the intelligence in the device, you now keep the intelligence in the cloud and the device can be produced much cheaper and easier. Right, and it can be configured and it can learn. Right? Uh, you know, it's similar to even our human body, right? You have that cloud up there in the head. In the, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the seat of all your consciousness. And it's connected to all these devices, if you want to think about it, the limbs and the fingers and actuators and muscles and everything. And we have nerves that connect you up into the brain. In some ways, a cloud has a parallel. Uh, the data centers where the cloud software runs, that's where you can do massive computing, massive processing, massive AI. And every device can then connect to it over the internet and over network and uh, take advantage of that AI. And the AI can learn. And so this power to collaborate in the cloud is huge. The power to integrate data is huge. The power to integrate experiences, learn, continuously improve. All of those are things that are very unique to this architecture of having cloud and AI and data all come together with the connectivity. Right. So both from the technology side, it provides scale so you can learn faster. And then for the hardware side, it makes sure that anything can connect to any intelligence. Right. Yeah, think about these as sort of full-stack applications. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll take examples that we are all familiar with, say, Uber for uh, uh, driving. You know, I think it's a full-stack application. It connects everything from the mobile to the GPS location to the cloud to the reasoning inside the cloud of what cars to allocate to which passenger and all of those kinds of things. And once you have that kind of a full-stack connection, you have a huge amount of data that accumulates on top of which you can do AI and you can learn and improve and keep improving. 
And then can a prosthetic arm, for instance, also learn from mobility? It could, and it could be trained. Right, a prosthetic arm can be trained to effectively uh, have autonomous behavior. Now, let me give you this example. Right, the arm I showed was a 3D printed arm that cost only a hundred bucks to make. Two undergraduate students made it. Uh, they put servo motors to close the fingers and fish lines to pull the fingers and all of that. They had a Raspberry Pi in it that actually was connected to a camera in the palm of its hand. Mm-hmm. So the pa- camera on the palm of its hand had to actually see the object it was going to grasp. Yeah. And then that uh, image is being sent to the cloud. The cloud service, the AI service, recognized what the image was. And then it triggered the right grip. Yeah. And so the grip could be done automatically. Now, you might think, why is that interesting? Look, I was uh, meeting the other day an engineer who had lost his arm at age eight. And he had gone to get one of those bionic arms. By the yeah. way, these bionic arms cost tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, compared to the $100 for the 3D printed one. Exactly. And, and it's hard to interface and you have to learn to use it and so on. But this device, uh, uh, that bionic arm, he couldn't attach it because his stump was too short. The nerves were not able to control a bionic arm. And he was totally inspired by the promise of an autonomous arm. The autonomous arm doesn't require interface to the body. In fact, it's not your brain directly controlling the movement. It's the cloud. It's the cloud. The cloud AI is controlling it. And it's trained to do the things you want it to do. It's autonomous. And it's trained. Its vision is trained by thousands, hundreds of thousands of images in the cloud, not just what you see. Correct. And the right kind of grip for that. Right? Yeah. And so you can trigger the arm's movement, right? but you don't have to precisely in fine detail control everything. So it's almost a robot that you control. Yeah. It's an assistive device that's intelligent. Yeah. So this is a future of almost all devices in uh, my mind, which is every connected device can become an AI-enabled device. It can be adapted, it can be personalized, it can be intelligent, it can sense its environment. And you basically go one level up in abstraction, which is you are uh, expressing to that device your intent and your goals, and the AI in the cloud helps that device satisfy that intent and the goal. You determine the what, but the AI determines the how. How, exactly. And that's actually very empowering. Yeah. Right. So that's a huge trend that you will see in the future. And then the second thing you talked about um, was how you at Microsoft, amongst others, are working on making AI available to anyone, even if you don't know how to code, for instance. Exactly. I think, by the way, that's a history of computing itself. Uh, if you think about it, you know, as a software engineer, you don't have to know compilers. Yeah. Okay. Somebody's built compilers for you so you can actually program. In the same way, in the case of AI in the future, which is the AI experts would have built APIs for you, for speech recognition, say, vision, computer vision, for translating among languages, and so on and so forth. There will be you know, hundreds, maybe thousands, or hundreds of thousands of APIs in the cloud mm-hmm. that perform really intelligent AI functions. And you as a software programmer, without having to understand a lot of the details, but with some training, will be able to write sophisticated programs that integrate all these functions. Kind of like how almost everyone nowadays knows how to use Excel or PowerPoint, but we don't really know what's going on behind it. Right, or Google Maps. Right. Right, and you can even program to Google Maps, right, or any of these map APIs. So once everyone has access to machine learning, what kind of possibilities is that going to open up? Well, I think it is going to be a really empowered world. I mean, uh, one of the things, uh, let me contrast, for example, AI development versus software. 
You know, when you're developing AI, you're thinking about the data and what you want to learn mm -hmm. from the data. Like in the case of the prosthetic arm, it was the images and how you want to grasp. Right? You're essentially sort of setting up a curriculum to teach AI, and you're framing a particular problem like a teaching problem, and then you're actually going to have machine learning learn to solve that problem very effectively. And that then connects to the rest of the software. And so software has explicitly programmed logic and then learned logic. They combine together to produce very powerful software. And so what then happens is so many problems that were difficult to tackle before, like language understanding, having a conversation with you, or uh, interpreting images, video, all of those kinds of things. Even generating art now, by the way. And so <laughs> AI that can actually synthesize art and AI that can dream. Now, you, you, all of these capabilities become uh, possible through software. So software becomes sentient, so to speak. Right, because you don't have to describe exactly anymore what it means or what it needs to do, but because you can show it the right answers exactly. and it will figure out how to get there by itself. Right, yeah. You're expressing, as, I, as we said earlier, your goals and objectives. And then the system figures out how to achieve that goal and objective for you. And right now, that's accessible to the smartest data scientists among us, but it might be accessible, it might become accessible to, say, my mother-in-law. It would, and it will appear in uh, many, many ways, right? Every application will, be, uh, will have a learning component. I mean, you already see that to some extent in mobile phone applications and so on, recommendations, Facebook, your news feed, you know, feeds are all using AI now to tailor. So it's already here, and we don't even know it. Right, yeah. So I liked how you summarized this in your talk yesterday. You were saying AI is a new normal, right? right. What does that world look like for you? What's going to be different once AI really is the new normal? I think there are going to be some very powerful things that change our lives. Uh, for example, healthcare. I think uh, the ability to learn from populations of data, learn to predict diseases, learn to predict chronic events, learn uh, to optimize hospital care, learn to predict emergency room readmissions, uh, to uh, predict you know, uh, medication adherence, essentially predictive maintenance for the human population, that's going to be empowered by AI. Uh, in fact, in India, we have a great project on eye care using AI. It's mm -hmm. called MINE, Microsoft Intelligent Network for Eye Care. And then we have another partnership with the Apollo Hospitals in India on uh, heart attack prediction, heart, uh, uh, cardiac heart failure risk scores, which are very predictive. You know, for example, you know, one thing they found in India when learning from the data is that uh, chewing tobacco is a high-risk factor for heart, heart, heart problems. I can imagine, yeah. The Western risk scores don't capture that as a risk factor. You know? Really? Yeah, because nobody thought of chewing tobacco. I mean, it's not a common behavior. Yeah, certainly smoking is a risk factor. But chewing tobacco turns out to be even higher risk in India than uh, smoking. So how did you learn that from the data? Uh, so lots of patients uh, who had cardiac issues, uh, the hospital had very good electronic medical records. Uh, so you knew what their uh, conditions were uh, at any given point in time, and you know when they had a heart attack, then you can build a predictive model to correlate the factors, right? But then chewing tobacco was actually included as a variable there, right. whereas it wasn't included as a variable in the Western world. That is correct. And they had captured lots of those kinds of data. And so when they built the model, those kinds of variables that popped, uh, they became an important weighting in the risk score. I guess you learn surprising things from the projects you're doing in India. Is that something that you can then translate to healthcare in, say, the Western world? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the things I think we should be thinking about. I was talking to a UN ambassador yesterday, and look, uh, humans are the same everywhere. How can we pool data across the world? 
for healthcare under the right regulatory constraints. You know, it's it's not something uh, that we can't regulate. We can regulate very well. And if you can pool the data across all sorts of diseases and health situations across the seven billion people on the planet, imagine what we could do for healthcare. There's just enormous, enormous potential for improving the world with data and AI. That if we come together uh, and with that vision, it can change the world. So, what do you feel are the big challenges to get there? What do you feel is required that we don't have yet right now? I think it's a lot of the will and the organization and the processes and understanding. The technology is there. We have the capabilities in the cloud. In the cloud, you can set up these data sharing uh, very securely. You can set up learning systems. You can set up APIs through which you can deliver the results of those models and the predictive models. So imagine every time you go to a doctor, that image that is taken, uh, it's immediately processed, and a system is predictively telling you what uh, health risk you may have. And essentially, you have the knowledge not just of your doctor, but of every doctor in the world. Right. And exactly, the data is being pooled across so many clinics. You know the outcomes of those patients, so you can actually predict, and you can become uh, better over time. And as more data comes in, uh, you actually become better and better. So now uh, there are two advantages. Not only can you predict better, but you can also eliminate a lot of the variability and error rates that happen. You know, you might have incredibly sophisticated doctors here in the U.S. or in the in Netherlands and in Europe, but you go to Africa or you go to any other part of the world, that care is very hard to come by. But now, with the power of cloud services that have learned these things, you can actually provide lots of advice all over the world. And you mentioned the technology is there and it's already happening in some spaces. It's happening. What what would we need to to scale it up and to indeed create the future as you see it? Education, understanding, and uh, organized programs targeting this technology. Look, I, I think uh, even WHO, for example, could have uh, targeted program programs to use these kind of technologies to, or promote these kind of technologies to advance the health of populations all over the world. In fact, um, I remember talking to a doctor who was actually saying, "It's almost." Um, not right that we are not using this technology, <laughs> you know, because it is, uh, you know, there is lots of very preventable human conditions that can be improved using just data and AI with existing infrastructure by and large, without having to retrain entire populations. And yeah. All of that. So there's a role for governments and institutions to play to create understanding and to promote the right programs. I'm sure there's a role for corporates to play uh, and for individuals as well, especially if AI becomes accessible to all of us. Right, and what corporations should uh, do is uh, help educate governments and policymakers on how to use this technology in the right way and in the most effective way. Uh, and I think Microsoft, by the way, has a lot of focus on that on policy, AI for ethics, uh, AI for good. How do you so do that? How do you drive that understanding of something that a lot of people consider essentially a black box? Well, it's truly a, not black, a black box. I mean, that a lot of people consider it that way. Uh, it's a statistical technique, and most of AI is statistical learning yeah. and very amenable to statistical testing as well. Uh, do you know who the first uh, female data scientist was? No. Uh, it was Florence Nightingale. Really? You know, yeah. Florence Nightingale was uh, given membership in the Royal Statistical Society in the 30s, and her work was uh, to show statistically how hygiene in hospitals affected. 
uh, healthcare. And she showed that during the Crimean War, for example, more people died in hospitals of hospital infection than in the battlefield. So she discovered that pattern, which is basically what a data scientist does. That's right. And so uh, in the same way, we're going to be able to use AI. AI is the new uh, equivalent. Right. And so you should be, we should be able to advise on how to develop AI, how to test AI, how to debug it, how to put it in production. How to disagree so. with AI also, because it's not always right, especially not on the first try. It's the same thing with software, by the way. Yeah. Right? I mean, AI is software. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we actually forget that sometimes it's just software. Software has to be debugged. It turns out AI, which is learned from data, needs a little different collection of techniques uh, to debug it because the data sometimes reflects the biases in data collection and what um, our own biases are sometimes. Exactly. Essentially, it's not different from debugging software or not different from doing a clinical trial that's often not right the first try also. Right. Exactly. And so you have to know what the desired behavior is and test against it and do statistically sound tests against it. And so I'm sure there's lots of research to be done in that area because it's an early field, but it is a very scientific field in my opinion. You know, really, reality is most software, by the way, is not scientific, quote-unquote, in that you can't prove it. Yeah, so proving software has been something that people have tried forever, but when it goes beyond a certain point, you can't prove. Yeah, you can never reach that 100% <clears throat> accuracy. That's right. It's only testable. And same thing with AI, uh, but at least AI is, uh, because it's fairly mathematical and statistical and, you know, the data sets it was learned on and you can record it, you can actually test it in a rigorous way. So what would that look like? You know, tested AI will have a certain level of confidence, right? You'll, you'll know a mathematically a level of confidence uh, with which you can rely on that one. And when that confidence uh, level is better than that of a human being, you can rely on that AI. So, for instance, the prosthetic arm you talked about in the beginning, right. how did you test it and how did you know it was good enough? Well, that prosthetic arm was uh, an Imagine Cup competition winner. It was developed by two undergraduate students. Uh, we didn't uh, really test it extensively for production use. It was a demonstration. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were really doing it in a production use, you would have lots of users test it and look at its behavior. But, you know, that, is, that particular prosthetic arm is fully under your control. You trigger it only when you want it, right? Uh, it doesn't keep, you know, going around it like an <laughs> arm that is off its own and grabbing things, right? It, it has a muscle sensor with that you trigger it and only when you want it. So say all this happens, AI isn't your normal, all the institutions and governments are using it, it's regulated in the right way, you have all these possibilities, what's the one problem you would want to solve first? I really have been fascinated by healthcare. I mean, that's the biggest opportunity for us. All of our populations across the world are aging. There is uh, so much load on the public governmental systems that is going to come in the next uh, few decades. And I think AI can make all of that so much more efficient and improve the human condition in a big way. I think that's very powerful. We'll always be responsible for setting the goals and defining what success will look like. But AI can help us find new, powerful ways to get there. Joseph Siraj, CTO of AI at Microsoft. The OG AI. Hello, I'm Kanta Dihal. I work at the University of Cambridge on a project called AI Narratives. And I'm going to tell you a very old narrative about artificial intelligence. It's called Descartes' Daughter. So René Descartes was famous for arguing that um, human beings, animals, everything that was alive was essentially pre-programmed. Basically, living things were automata. What made 
humans different from other animals was that our automata are steered by souls. Now, of course, that was a very controversial view. Now, that view of his was fairly well known, but what's less well known was that Descartes had an illegitimate daughter, uh, Francine, and Descartes was very fond of his daughter, and despite it being very socially inappropriate to have an illegitimate child, he would spend a lot of time with her, but then little Francine died at the age of five of scarlet fever, and Descartes was devastated. And now the story goes, he had an automaton built in her likeness. He had a little robot Francine, and he would take her with him on his travels in a box by his side. So when Queen Christina of Sweden invited Descartes to come to her court, he took the automaton Francine with him on his sea voyage. So he had a big trunk with him in his, in his cabin on this boat. And crossing the North Sea was very stormy and it was very difficult. And uh, Descartes spent a lot of time in his cabin. But then the crew on the ship kept hearing these voices coming from his cabin. Descartes was talking to someone and, well, he was clearly alone in that cabin, so they were wondering what was going on in there. They were started thinking, well, is he doing something unnatural? Is he a sorcerer? Is he doing something diabolical that is the cause of all this bad weather and adverse circumstances that we're having? So one night when Descartes was not in his cabin, the ship's captain and his crew broke into uh, that cabin and saw a big trunk. So they opened that trunk and to their horror, that mechanical Francine sat up and greeted them. And they were so terrified of this unnatural being that they grabbed the Francine automaton and tossed her overboard. And they eventually reached Sweden. But Descartes died a couple of months after this. I might still change my mind on that microwave and throw in a connected fridge while I'm at it. Who knows what possibilities it'll open up. Follow me for more at bnr.nl slash AI podcast or on your favorite podcast app.